It's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. In this episode, we're going to hear from James Warnkin. He is an online accessibility specialist. Like me, James is also legally blind. So we'll talk a little bit about what that means and when it started for him and the super rare and unique condition that caused his blindness, what accessibility means to him and what he's doing to make the web and other digital assets more accessible for not only visually impaired, but people of all different types of abilities. Hey, James, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm looking at your uh, profile online here. Legally Blind, Online Accessibility Specialist, Disability Advocate, Entrepreneur, and Creative. Sounds like you're kind of a busy guy. I, I like to not be bored is my philosophy. Okay. So let's start with the uh, legal blindness. I know a little something about being legally blind. Uh, I've gone through my story quite a bit here on the podcast, but I have no vision in my right eye and 2300 vision in my left eye due to a uh, bacterial meningitis episode that happened uh, just about this time of the year, about 25 years ago. So it's been been a interesting ride since, different than, than it was before. I'm kind of curious to know if you can walk us through your legal blindness journey. Yep, absolutely. So um, it was kind of a surprise. I was actually in like a kid's play um, parents sign us up for all that kind of stuff. I was in one of those and they had the cards in the back of the room with what we were supposed to say. And I couldn't read the card. So my mom, red flags went off. Let's go to the eye doctor. I went to a series of eye doctors and some of them said I was just being stubborn. I was not wanting to cooperate and, and all of this. And eventually one of them took the time to do some more in-depth testing and they uh, sent me up to the Cleveland Clinic here in Ohio, where I had a lot more testing done. And it, it came back that I was losing my vision at a pretty rapid pace at nine years old. And the diagnosis eventually came out that it was genetic retinal dystrophy, which is a pretty rare version of Cones and Rods disease. I have yet to meet anyone other than my younger brother with the same exact thing. And I am all over social media looking and trying to find it and haven't ever run into anybody else with it. And so diagnosed at nine and over the, I would say the next 10 or 11 years up to when I was about 18 years old, I uh, was losing my vision pretty quickly. So my accommodations and all of that were constantly changing and being updated through school and personal life. and um, Throughout that period, I was learning how to read and write in Braille and navigate navigate with a white cane and doing all of that really to prepare for what might eventually be a reality of being completely blind. There's not a whole lot that's known about it. So my mom did what she could to prepare me for that day if it does come. I'm currently 25 and fortunate to still have working vision to where I can do my job at a computer all day, every day, still see pretty well to get around 
out in public when we're at the grocery store or out at a park or whatever that might be. So very fortunate and do not really take advantage or discredit the the vision that I do have because uh, I rely on it still pretty heavily, even though it's not that great. And I know that I could be in a completely blind at 25 reality. So always just grateful to to still have the vision that I do. And funny enough, I actually have my 10-year checkup at the Cleveland Clinic where they're going to do a whole lot of new, updated, modern testing to see if there's anything else that they can learn about it. Um, so I am a little bit of a guinea pig in that setting where they're still really just trying to learn and understand how it happens because it's a genetic thing. So do a lot of testing and, and things around that, but also to see and sort of track how fast is it going to progress because it started out really quickly and then it's sort of stabilized and flattened out. And now it's a, every 10 years or so going back and reevaluating to see how it's changed from the previous visit to today and a little bit nerve wracking, but I'm actually going to be documenting that entire process and making a video sort of vlog day in the life of what it's like going to the eye doctor with a visual disability. So I'm excited, but also nervous. A lot of stuff there. So you might be patient zero or at least among the, the very few. That's interesting. What, what is it called again? Genetic retinal dystrophy. And you have a brother that has the condition as well? Yeah. So we're four years apart. I was diagnosed at nine. He got lucky and was like 14. Uh, so he got a few more years of uh, having his vision than I did. Do you have any other siblings? Uh, I'm the middle of five. And out of the five, me and him are the only two that expressed it. Wow. I don't know what's more shocking. Five siblings or four siblings, I guess, five of you or the two that got it. That's um, that's pretty wild. Wow. Yeah. The, the, the doctors are super curious. They did like family genetic testing where they took a blood sample from all of my like immediate family to see like the pattern of, of how it only expressed out of two of five, um, wow. because apparently that's not a super common thing that happens when it's genetic based. Yeah. What's, what's life growing up with four siblings? Crazy at all times. I have two <laughs> older siblings. Um, my older brother is in the military currently my older sister who's the only sister is in south korea right now married into the military and then i have two younger brothers that are here in northeast ohio with me one is 21 uh currently in school and in training the other just turned 18 will be 19 soon actually and he's still in that trying to figure out what life means stage so yeah, I'm still in that phase too, actually. So <laughs> tell him he's, he's not the only one. Yeah, but there, there's always something going on, whether it was a graduation, high school event, sports. There, there's just always something yeah, going on when I there's bet. five of us oh, running yeah. around. That's crazy. Yeah, five. Woo. All right, so let's back up to age nine. Did you notice anything before this event happened where you weren't able to read the cards? Did, if Looking back on it, does it anything ring a bell or is that really the first thing that was noticed? The, uh, the biggest giveaway on my end was that I was coming home from school almost every day with a headache with no explanation as to why I was getting a headache. And then when I started to get large print papers, the headaches went away. So 
It was accredited ultimately to eye strain and fatigue of trying to read the textbooks and see the board. And at that point, I didn't know what was going on. So I was just thought it was a normal thing. And um, after the accommodations kicked in with the extended time on tests, moving closer to the board, large print papers, the headaches seemed to go away. And funny enough, now at 25, if I sit at my computer for too long and it's raining out, for whatever reason, that combination triggers a headache. So there's just little things like that that I picked up along the way that are signs of I'm, I'm straining and trying to use my eyes beyond what they're capable of. And it typically leads to a headache. Wow, that's interesting. If it's raining and you're, is it just a computer or could you be watching a TV or doing something else with your eyes and it causes a headache? Yeah, it's just, it's just general. Um, I strain my eyes pretty much all the time. And apparently when it, it gets dark and gloomy and, and rainy, something with the pressure, and I, I, I don't really have a technical explanation for it. But if I wake up and it's raining, I know it's probably not going to end in the best of day. Oh, man. Well, you're in the wrong part of the world then. I mean, I'm, I was actually, I'm actually from Ohio. I'm from Southern Ohio. I do know about the, the kind of gray kind of days that seems like it's a great place, Ohio. It's the heart of it all, actually, isn't it? Isn't that still, is it still the heart of it all? I, I'm not sure. The only thing I've seen recently is all the memes of only in Ohio. Oh, there's is that the too. Explanation for <laughs> but when, back when I lived there, that was what was on the bumper sticker. That was like the, the, the motto for Ohio, the Ohio, the heart of it all. It's like, interesting yeah i don't maybe it's changed yeah, change. there's like a statistic where it's overcast more than two-thirds of the days in the year yeah so Ohio. if that's going to be a problem man we got to get you maybe to the south a little bit or further away from the, the the lakes up there i guess maybe i don't know what it is and and of course you'd, you'd miss the snow if you moved a little further south too which yeah could be a well good I, I spent some time in college in washington dc I don't know if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., but the pollen and allergy season there is terrible um, with all the cherry blossom trees and everything. So I escaped that headache with the stormy, gloomy weather and went right into allergy season in Different Washington, kind of D.C. So I haven't really had much luck. Yeah, I haven't had much much luck escaping it completely yet. All right. Well, no, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not, I'm not going to be a not being a good source for you there, but I, I'm in Texas. Things are things are usually pretty sunny down here. Now we get rain, of course, but uh, it's usually usually pretty sunny. But um, I don't know. Uh, good luck with that. That that's a weird combination. Were your accommodations you said were changing throughout school? It was kind of a moving target as things continued to change. I guess for you was that 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 couldn't have been easy, or is it with the resilience of youth? You just didn't really know any better. The, the old saying, like, I used to have to walk uphill to school both ways yeah, in right. the snow. Uh -huh. um, that's that's what it felt like. Trying to, uh, being a 10, 11-year-old kid and having to explain to a, a teacher or a faculty or staff member why I needed things instead of them just doing it um, was never easy all the way up through graduating high school. I had teachers that didn't believe that I had a visual disability because I could see to walk to and from class without a white cane in my hand. I had anytime there was a substitute teacher in the classroom, it was most likely not going to be a very enjoyable class. It, it just getting the teacher to 
remember and it's it's not something that looking back on i necessarily blame the teacher for like those teachers have 30 students rotating in and out of their classroom six seven eight times a day and trying to remember what one student out of the bunch needs probably not a very easy thing to do so i was sort of in that constant reminding and it, it felt a little bit annoying to be that kid that was oh, i can't see to do this can you enlarge this can is there an audio version? Can I go to a different classroom to take my test? All of that just felt annoying to be a student in that position. And it, it, it sort of persisted all the way up through high school. And then when I got into college, it was like a new horizon because I now had dedicated staff focused on making sure that I was getting the accommodations that I was need, needing. Mm -hmm. And checking in to see if there was additional things that I needed. Like um, there were certain classes where it was heavy on like whiteboard. The teachers didn't really use PowerPoints. They wrote on the whiteboard. And in those settings, uh, it was a matter of getting out of class, calling the lady in charge of the accessibility center saying, is it possible to get a note taker for this class? Um, because he writes a lot on the board. And I, I don't feel comfortable taking pictures every five minutes of the classroom. Mm -hmm. and Within within a week's turnaround, I had a note taker that was sending me the notes immediately after class. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so so it was like it was like a whole different experience in college from the public school system of how fast things were were happening, and it was up to me to self advocate still, but it wasn't like I was advocating for the same thing over and over again. It was more of like a one-time thing, and then it just happened. Well, digital accessibility is a perfect fit for you then, because you've been uh, dealing with that directly for, for for much of your formative years. You know, it, based on your, what your age you're telling me now, high school was, you know, 10-ish years ago for you or less. If you were in high school today, do you think you'd have the same experience at the same facility? Or am I imagining that, accessibility has gotten has dramatically improved and even the messaging to the local elementaries middle schools and high schools is better now than it than it was say 10 years ago i would honestly if so my younger brother the youngest one was in high school during the pandemic when they shifted everything online and said log into your class at this time and and do whatever you need to do at home. If I was in school during that period, I feel like I would have excelled because of how comfortable I am and how comfortable I've gotten with technology and being able to manipulate it to do what I need to do. I feel like I would have done significantly better in the classroom setting in that virtual online, even hybrid model that they're using today. Uh, so I don't know if it's necessarily the content itself has become more accessible or if it's um, that the, the staff and the faculty are being trained differently as much as it would be me figuring out how to solve my own problems without having to rely on an external factor or person, if that makes any sense. Yeah, technology outside of the classroom has improved dramatically enough that you could probably do a lot of that stuff on your own. 
Yeah. And, and I experienced it at the tail end of college. My last eight weeks of my bachelor's degree were actually online at the peak of the pandemic. Um, so I got to experience a taste of that. And all it did for me, because I was working at the time, was I loaded everything up on like Sunday and Monday night. And then I would just have the rest of the week to focus on my work. So I actually was moving at a pretty fast pace compared to the classroom traditional setting and environment. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about online accessibility. What Give me a brief overview. What is online accessibility? Or let me let me tell you what I think it might be. If I'm your average website creator or developer or something, I need to pay attention to almost nothing and just kind of code it the way I think I should. And you know, I've got this idea for what I want to do, and this will work for everyone. So I don't really need any accessibility. Is that kind of does that attitude exist in the world or am I imagining that? that? That attitude certainly exists in the world. The way that I like to, to break down accessibility is rooted in a more creative approach and less of a technical approach. And the sort of phrase that I always go to is if someone can't see it, can they hear it? If someone can't hear it, can they see it? And are there a multiple opportunities or, or mechanisms in place for people to access that information? That generally covers most of the inaccessible components that come with a website, an application, or a document to the extent of approaching the content design as the author in a way that is going to be more widely accessible than if it was just done in a single track mindset. So when you're making a podcast, that's primarily audio based. If someone has a hard time hearing or can't hear at all, what are the options to provide that in an alternative way where they still have relatively the same equivalent experience? And the answer with podcasts is a text version through transcript. a transcript. Yeah. Um, so, so it's really just that creative approach of taking one step back from yourself and thinking about the people alongside of you and around you. And, and what can we do to provide this in ways that allow everyone to be comfortable? And the example that I always seem to find myself coming back to are captions. Because I feel like captions have become a pretty standard thing for, for video audio combinations. YouTube has captions automatically generated. They're not always the best. Zoom, Google Meets, all of those virtual meeting platforms have captions, live captioning enabled. It's become pretty standard. And it's not just limited to people that have a hard time hearing or can't hear at all. You could be in an airport and it's loud, it's noisy, you can't hear it, you turn the captions on. So it, it's sort of in, in my head and from my perspectives, approaching that threshold where it's viewed less as an accessibility thing and more as a usability thing. I think that line between the two originally was very thin and now it's expanding to where there's a, a lot of overlap between 
a, a good user experience and an accessible user experience. Yeah, when I think of captions too, I think you mentioned in an airport, there's been many times where I've been in an airport and you'll see like they'll have, there'll be a bar or something or some sort of, there'll be a television and it'll be on, but it'll it'll likely be muted. There won't be any sound coming out of it. And they'll just have the closed caption or the trans, whatever the captions are for the video. I've, I feel like I've seen that a lot in that type of environment. Yeah. But um, I, I think they were just using that because they knew the TV would be muted or be loud. That wasn't like an accessibility thing per se, although it, it technically was an accessibility thing. I, don't, I just don't think we used that kind of language back in the, say, the 90s when, um, when you were walking through an airport and CNN was on, you know, like all the, all the televisions as you're walking by. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well in, in that setting, it, it creates an accessible experience for everyone except blind people or people with yeah. visual disabilities. Right. Yeah. Um, so e- even that is not perfect, but in, in the, the, the accessibility space, it is nearly impossible to ever deem something as completely accessible to everyone. And, and that's just simply due to the fact to the diversity in disabilities themselves. You and I both have visual disabilities my perspective, my personal preferences, my behaviors and and the things that work for me most likely wouldn't work for the next person in line. My younger brother, he's not a, a technical person. So me showing him a screen reader and high contrast mode and all of these things, he's like, yeah, that's cool if I'm ever on a computer, but that's not something I'm going to use and rely on every day. So it, it's hard to get to a point where something is truly 100% accessible. It's it's more about thinking of a lot bigger of a population than just the 75% that don't live with disabilities. It, it's a it's a hard thing for people to, to sort of grasp and sort of wrap their head around because in their mind, they're, they're thinking compliance, they're thinking legal repercussions they're thinking of all of these things and if there's even one person they're at risk and it's more about the the approach to that experience that really matters and if somebody is having difficulties or challenges or they're facing barriers or blocks you have to be responsive enough to adapt it when those type of, of scenarios present themselves. It's not a static thing that you do once and you never touch it again. It's an ongoing thing like marketing, advertising, team development, internal culture development. It's it's a it it should be at this point a a pillar of doing business, as I've heard it referred to from some of my mentors. It it should be alongside of HR, PR, accessibility, marketing, admin billing and invoicing, like whatever those pillars of business are, accessibility should be one of them at this point. And it's just, it's not widely adapted yet. And your dealings are, is is it, it's becoming more adapted. And some of that may be due to kind of like you said, uh, regulations or, or fear of not being accessible sort of, but are are generally people react, uh, responsive to that? Are they are they into wanting to be accessible, generally, or is it still pretty kind of 
I mean, to just to use a, just is it, is it kind of annoying to people that they have to do these kind of things to make websites in particular more accessible? I, I don't think people are opposed to the, the idea of accessibility. I think from my experience and the conversations I've had with businesses across all industries at this point, it's more of an overwhelming sort of concept in, in their opinion of this is a big undertaking that we're going to have to pull people from their teams and pull them from their day-to-day activities to, to implement this and get it to where it's at an acceptable level. So I tend to get a lot of initial deer and headlight reactions um, where it's just like, whoa, this is a lot. Can we take a step back? Can we slow down? And as we start to sort of pick some of those things apart, what I like to do is in, in the first meeting, just tell them what it is, give them some some key terms and, and background information. And then the, the very next step that I like to go into is, okay, let's pull your website up. Let's experience your website from the blind user perspective. Let's experience it if we had colorblindness all of a sudden, if we had X, Y, or Z. And in, in just doing something as simple as that, their their gears start turning and they're like, oh, we could have just done it this way or tweaked this slightly or done this. And and that's why I don't approach it from a technical standpoint. Because if I came in and said, your HTML is not structured properly or you're using CSS to style things that's making them appear hidden, th- that's not going to get people's attention. That's not really going to grab them and make them want to change it. But showing them that experience and saying, yeah, you have three green buttons that say click here. If you couldn't see that those buttons were paired with an image and a paragraph of text, you just heard click here, click here, click here. How would you know where any of those go? And in something like that, there it clicks that their button text needs to be more descriptive. And, and moving forward, they're going to go back and fix those buttons and anywhere else in the site that has a button. They're going to make sure that just by hearing it, you know where it's going to take you to or what action it's going to do. So so I like to try to simplify it down as much as possible to where it's not triggering overwhelming feelings where this is some huge thing that's going to take a ton of time or cost a ton of money or we need to bring in external service providers. It's more of we just need to slightly shift small components and compound that shift over time. And and in the long term, we're just going to continuously get better and become more accessible to the the wider population. And so far that approach has has worked pretty well in getting people on board. We've, We've engaged transportation companies, advertising and marketing agencies, colleges and universities, that had some understanding of accessibility and then we come in and understand what they know and just place the building blocks. It's like playing with Legos to to build an outcome. And it, it's worked pretty well so far. We haven't really had anybody that has said we need to put the brakes on, stop, understand why we're doing this and and make it this long, uh, complex thing. It's just incremental improvements that compound on themselves. Yeah, I like the approach. Uh, as a guy who's a, no stranger to sales, I've been doing sales for 
long enough and developed all kinds of different approaches for sales, but kind of what you were, as you're walking through that, your technique and how you approach those things, it kind of reminds me of uh, the, the idea that facts tell, but stories sell. So if you come in and say HTML this and CSS that and blah, 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 people's you're, eyes. You're they, at risk of being sued. And <laughs> yeah, they, their eyes just glaze over and they're like, and then they freak out or whatever. But if you can show them, okay, so here's the experience of what this was like for this type of situation or this type of situation. Because I, I, I think you're right. People generally want it to be accessible as possible. I, that makes just common sense. People are, you know, ethical people. They want to help people. And that's kind of the general general way of life. So if you can show it to them in a, in a way that it's uh, much more compelling than coming at them with, you know, daggers and, and uh, a bunch of HTML code, there's like, it doesn't make any sense to me. So that, that's a, I'm, I'm sure that technique has, has worked yeah. well. It's, especially with like the, the decision makers, the people who are going to say, yes, let's do this. No, let's not do that. Because a lot of times it's not going to be the, the lead developer or the lead designer that makes that final call. So it, it really has to be tailored in a way that the person sort of sitting a little bit higher up on the food chain. The big picture people that don't need the finite minutia. Yeah. We're not trying to convince them. We're just conveying the information and, and sort of prompting a, 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 a response. It's not necessarily a, if you don't do this, I'm because I'm blind, I'm going to turn around and file a, a suit against you. It's more, everything we do is rooted in education and training. We never engage someone just saying, oh, just let me do it. Let me take care of that for you. There's always an education or a training component to it to where that designer, when they build their next prototype, they're going to be thinking about color contrast. They're going to be thinking about link text and button text and structure and format that leads to a more accessible and engaging experience not just for people with disabilities but for everyone i think there's a, a lot of overlap between usability and accessibility at this point where if we go onto a website and we see every button is colored the exact same and has the same text it's not as trustworthy of a site as if the button is very clear and direct on where it's going to take you where the link tells you this is going to our pricing page versus saying, learn more, and then you're smacked in the face with, here's all of our pricing options, buy now, buy now, buy now. Yeah, you, you made a distinction there between usability and accessibility. There is quite a distinction in those terms. Yes, historically there is. And you've also said we a couple times. We approached this or we talked to some people. So who is we? Is, it, is that Apex Communications Network? Yeah, so that's me, me and my colleague, RJ. He's currently pursuing his CPAC certification from the IAAP while I'm pursuing the, the WAS, the Web Accessibility Specific Certification. And we are sort of the dynamic duo at Apex that leads the charge on accessibility. So what does Apex do? Apex is a brand strategy and consulting firm. So we have a couple of different segments. Um, RJ and I are more in charge of the accessibility and then Jan and Logan sort of lead the business consulting, marketing strategy, um, customer experience, all of that from a biz dev perspective on how do we attract more customers, convert more customers, 
How do we understand the audience? Is it the audience that's, that you think you need to be selling to, or is it the audience that's actually going to buy and purchase? And how do we sort of fill in all of those gaps to where all of your efforts are moving in the same direction, not sort of conflicting with one another? So two sort of main verticals, and they all branch into their own. And with my original background in digital marketing and SEO and development for websites, I, I sort of trickle into their realm a little bit when they need me. But for the most part at this point, I'm focused on accessibility and overall user experience. And you've also got your own jam going on. I don't know if it's on the side or uh, concurrent with that. But uh, Clear Vision, what do you do with what, what's Clear Vision going on? Got going on? So Clear Vision is a little bit of a funny story. Um, Clear Vision was originally a clothing company. I started Clear Vision Clothing when I was a freshman in college because I I've always been a little bit artistic. So I decided to start making my own T-shirts and hoodies and and things like that. I was designing them, printing and pressing and and all of that, and then friends and family wanted some. And then the people that I was hanging out with at the skate park wanted some. So I just decided to file the LLC and and start selling clothing and apparel that I was designing. And that lasted all of about, I would say two, two and a half years. But what it did was help me get my textbooks and buy food through college as a broke college kid. That was sort of the driving force there. But as that, as the clothing and everything started to pick up steam with the website and e-commerce and social media marketing. And I, I was basically applying everything I was learning in college to that business to see how far I could take it. And at some point there was this shift where people weren't really buying the clothing anymore, but they wanted to know how I was gaining followers on Instagram or how I got my website to do a certain thing or what payment processor I was using. And they started asking all of these questions and me being sort of the entrepreneur, I was like, yeah, I can help with that. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, that's not a problem. Let's schedule a meeting. Let's sit down and talk about it. So Clear Vision Clothing morphed into Clear Vision Marketing and Media, where I started building websites on my own, um, troubleshooting, doing email and domain migrations and all of that sort of tech stuff. And that's really where I got my footing was going to local events with small businesses um, where there was like vendor booths and things like that. I would go talk to the local business owners, check out their business cards. If there wasn't a website, that was my sort of lead generation at that point was, oh, you don't have a website. Why is that? And, And I would get responses of, oh, it's too expensive. It takes too much time. It's too hard to figure out. So I would then pitch on on building them a website for a couple hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there. A lot more sustainable than making t-shirts and hoodies at this point. And and that started to actually build up. And and I had my own list of clients and sort of had my own little little thing going on. And then COVID happened. A lot of those small businesses went to back to just being a hobby or a side hustle or or whatever that looked like. And then I graduated. And at that point, I gave myself sort of an ultimatum of this has to grow to a point where I can sustain and buy a house and 
and move out of my mom's house and start my life or I got to find a job. And that story doesn't have a happy ending. I ended up having to find a job. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay. The, the, skills, yeah. the skills that I gathered and, and I, was I was not saying no to any project, even if I had no clue how to do it. It was an absolutely, I can do that. And I spent hours working on projects just to make 50 bucks, 75 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever that looked like. One, because I wanted to help the business owner and I, I wanted to, to get that experience. But two, I knew that as my career sort of unfolded, the more minute sort of skills that I could bring to the table, the more valuable I was going to be. So whether it was my my payment processing on my WordPress site is down, how do I fix it? And me having to go through Reddit threads to figure out how to get into cPanel because I'd never been in there and then figuring out how to pull the error logs and then trace it back and troubleshoot and all of that. I didn't get paid near as much as I probably should have for that project. But moving forward, anytime anyone's ever called me with that issue, I can fix it in about 10, 15, 20 minutes now instead of three or four days. So that sort of journey from the clothing to providing services to small businesses and local vendors to the accessibility space that I'm in now, everything has been this massive curve of learning and adding skills to where I'm not necessarily having to spend a lot of time researching at this point, but it's more just connecting dots on everything that I've learned over the last seven years. It's a culmination of all kinds of different things that come exactly. together there. Yeah. So it's been an untraditional journey, but I wouldn't do it any other way. Yeah, James, I think sometimes life, um, unconventional journeys uh, take us places that you uh, wouldn't thought necessarily you would have been before. But you you end up somewhere where it might be pretty cool and you just kind of figure things out. So it sounds like that's kind of what you've done. Absolutely. I, I'm curious because I, I believe you had a little bit of an unconventional journey as well. Curious what your experience was like. You mentioned that you were diagnosed and, and everything sort of happened during your college time. What was that experience like on your end? I, I went into college living with a disability for 11, 12 years. I can't even imagine what it was like being in college and that sort of happening in, in real time and having to do all of that adjustment and figuring things out sort of on the fly. So I'm just curious to hear your sort of thoughts and perspective on, on what that was like. Yeah. How much time you got, James? Um... <laughs> it could be a long answer. And I've talked a little bit about this in previous episodes. I, it's it's kind of hard to describe, really, because sort of like you, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm pretty unique. Mine was bacterial meningitis. I was a sophomore in college. And meningitis is pretty, pretty rare. Um, this happened to me in 1998. At that time, there were about, I think, about 3,000 cases of meningitis in the United States per year. It's very fast acting, is often fatal, and when it's not fatal, generally the survivor has some sort of permanent reminder or disability in my case. There's liver 
not just liver, but organ failure and limb amputations and hearing loss, sight loss, all kinds of things that people survive with meningitis. So um, as we speak today in 2023, the cases of meningitis are down to, say, around, I think, around 300 per year in the United States. That's mostly through vaccines and, and advocacy and awareness and things. And that's one of the things that I do now is advocate for, for meningitis and, and things that so people know that there are vaccines and awareness about what it is. I, I think they're required to live on campus at, on colleges now. And it depends on the state that you're in. Yeah. Um, different states have different requisites for that. And it, even in, um, uh, I, have a, I have a child in elementary school and on the vaccine list, meningitis, uh, there's two vaccines for it. I'm giving you way more information on meningitis than you wanted to know, but there's five basic types of meningitis. They're all letters, A, C, W, Y, and then B. And the ACWY uh, is, is one vaccine you can get, and then the B one is separate. So on most vaccine things, you'll see those today. But back when I had it, the vaccines didn't exist, and it was a lot more prominent. Okay, so I'm, I'm already unique because of that, because I've had it, and then I survived it. It caused some pretty unique neurological challenges for me, which is why I call myself ambiguously blind. Um, I meant to mention that earlier as you were talking about kind of your teachers didn't believe you or people doubted that you couldn't see because you were able to you know, move around relatively good and you're telling them that you can't see. I, I was going to tell you that it sounds like you're describing somebody that's ambiguously blind, which is where the podcast name comes from. So at the age of 19, when this happened to me, I didn't have any friends that were blind. I didn't have any friends that had really spent any considerable time in the hospital. I was in the hospital for three weeks and then I, I left school and went home to my parents' house, was there for about five months um, recouping, uh, recovery. I had a lot of physical stuff. Uh, laying in bed for three weeks will, will basically take all of your, your, your muscles atrophy. Uh, I had all kinds of machines and uh, feeding tubes and ventilators. And my, my body was a, was a wreck, right? So forget about the whole sight thing. It was, there was really, it was, it was, I, I was learning basic human functions. Um, mm. sitting up, swallowing, standing, walking, just things like that were, were things I was relearning. Okay. And I'm 19 and I turned 20 that, that a few months later. So basically I'm 20 years old and I'm, re I'm learning some pretty rudimentary things. And one of the crazy things about technology and accessibility and returning back to school was I, I've always been kind of a computer technology kind of nerd. I've, I've always been into that ever, ever since I was a kid. And, um, I was a really fast typer. I took typing in high school when I was only sighted. And I, I always looked at the keys though. I used my hunt and peck technique and I was always the <laughs> fastest in the class. Whenever we had stuff we would do and, you know, like word or Excel or whatever, I would always be among the first done, if not the first and mine would always be right. And it looks the best and all that. So I've just really been into that. When I lost my sight, I couldn't see the keys, right? I can see enough to walk around, but I can't see enough to see the keys. So I had to go actually go take keyboarding again because I, I learned I, I, I had to use my sight to um, type. So that was kind of one of the things that was crazy about just, I was like, I guess I got to go back to keyboarding. And it was kind of funny because the person would, when I was at the keyboarding class, they would put a um, thing over top of your keyboard so you wouldn't, so you couldn't look at the keys. You know, your hand slid underneath this little yeah. cover. And I was like, you know, 
not not a problem, man. I don't I don't need one of those. I'm not going to cheat anymore. So then <laughs> I'm, I'm I go back to my parents' house and I'm home and I'm recovering and there's just all this just craziness happening. It's hard to describe. It really is. And I'm actually in the process of writing a book about it. Um, that should be out later this year. In fact, um, we're getting right close to putting the, the finishing touches on that. But uh, it's quite an incredible story. But going back to college, James, I think kind of the core of what you're your message was here or your question was um it's especially pertaining to accessibility and accommodations man i walked by the library uh dozens or hundreds of times when i was on that campus and uh even though i went in it occasionally uh i didn't know that there was a thing called the texas commission for the blind um i didn't know that there were all of these i didn't know that there was a, a testing facility where people would go take tests if you're like dyslexic or you have some other sort of challenge where sitting in a classroom and taking tests isn't going to work for you. There was a whole, there was a building on campus that housed the, uh, I can't remember what it's called exactly, but essentially it was the place where you could go get your test uh, either read to you or in an environment where you could, you know, take the test normally. So all of a sudden I start walking around, looking around, talking to people, talking to the Texas Commission for the Blind, talking with other people on campus that I had never talked to before. And there's a, there's a, a world of accessibility right there that I, I didn't pay attention to. So my experience, I think, was sort of similar to what you said about when you were in college and the resources that were available. But, you know, then we get into like psychology and stuff, man. And, and that's where we could spend days talking about that. There's all kinds of, you know, my, mine was I, I went to sleep one night uh, in February and woke up eight days later in the hospital. So all the stuff that happened to me happened during that time when I was in a coma for eight days. And so waking up on the other side of that is, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to, it sounds like you were pretty natural when it came to like the self-advocacy and like finding the, the right people on campus to talk to and, um, sort of navigating that. At that time, were how how hard was it to get materials? Uh, I don't know if they were large print or braille or a combination of, of regular and large print or any of the above. How how difficult was it at that time to get a hold of the sort of class material? Yeah, it was not. Um, it wasn't that difficult, but there was a process to go through for it. Now, I have, I do, I still to this day do not read Braille. Um, again, I mentioned I was pretty technology, technologically savvy. So, and I had enough sites where I could use magnification on a computer and I could rock and roll pretty well. As it turned out, something that became clear to me after my meningitis situation was that I'm, I'm mostly an audible learner. Um, if I, like go back and think about when I was in elementary or middle school or even in particularly high school, I would read things and I wouldn't take notes, but I found that I like, I usually absorbed the most amount of information just by hearing it and kind of yeah. filing it away in my head and kind of memoriz memorization even, um, even when I was normally cited. So I, I relied on the majority of that for my college stuff. And Thus, because I didn't read Braille, there were accommodations for that. I would have note takers. Um, I would also actually, oftentimes, I would um, bring a recorder to class, a cassette recorder, actually. 
Um, today'd yeah. be a little different, but I had I had a cassette recorder, a little handheld job that I would I'd bring with me and be able to recall most of the stuff that we were talking about. But yeah, that anything on the board or anything on the PowerPoint was was missed. But generally, I also had a buddy in the class. This happened enough where I was getting into more of my core business classes. So I was getting to be along with, you know, people that I knew that I'd I'd gone to class with before. And so they were assisting me with those kind of things. But the Texas Commission for the Blind also um, had a service where anything I needed read would be read for me. So I could take my textbooks somewhere on campus and have them read, or I could have a friend of mine, like a roommate or somebody, um, could do the same thing and they could, they would be compensated, um, by the, by the program to do those things for me. So I didn't really use any, actually, I didn't use any Braille whatsoever. Most stuff was audio, either on cassettes or through just kind of, you know, I, I, I didn't study alone very often. I would do a lot of buddy studying and, and that kind of stuff. So I don't know, that's kind of a wide range. Well, of- you said two things that you said, you said two things that I want to point out. It's actually a lot lower of a percentage of blind or visually impaired people that read and write in Braille. I think, I think it, 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 it might be below 50%, but I, I feel like that's a, a common misconception that because someone can't see, they instinctively or, or through some magic know how to read and write in Braille. Yep. Um, and that's just not the case. I only know how to read and write in Braille because my mom paid for a class for someone to teach me for one to two hours once a week. Yeah. And the second thing you talked about, like having a, a pretty easy time memorizing things that you heard or through audio. Do, do you think that the like old saying, when one sense goes, the others improve? Do, do you think that's true from, from your perspective of because the, the vision went your ability to memorize or recall things or your hearing or sense of smell or taste or touch got better. All right. I'll answer that in a second, but back to the previous thing you said about, you mentioned, you've mentioned your mom a couple of times and I need to mention mine as well. Both of my parents, they, they were really critical in my recovery and you were talking about me self-advocating and that is true. And I was pretty good at doing that. Not initially though, cause I didn't really know what that meant exactly and and how to do that but i do remember kind of at the beginning of my reemergence back into college where um my i, I can remember my mom and i going to the texas commission for the blind office for the for the first time on campus so you know she um got me started got me rolling and got me to a point where i could do things on my own which is what i wanted i didn't want my parents to you know hold my hand through college but I did need a little initiative or a little kind of a push to understand what that was. And I think from there, I was, it was pretty smooth sailing. Regarding the sense question, the quick answer is no. I don't think the sense is better because I think I, as I also mentioned, I think even if I look back, I think that's kind of the way I learned best always. But it, it really didn't become apparent to me until that was the sense I, 
I needed for sure. Like it was, this was my only sense when I'm sitting in a right. lecture hall with 300 people. And I'm, even though I'm sitting on the front row because I, I need to, that's my best bet for seeing what's happening. I still really can't see the board or anything. So I don't think my senses improved, but what definitely happened was I started paying attention to those senses. The, the other, you know, smell, touch, uh, and particularly hearing in the, in the classroom. I think we, we hone those skills. And once you rely on them for a certain period of time, do they get better? Maybe not no. Maybe no is not the exact answer. But I think they, they improve. But I think our, we pay so close attention to those that we are able to, or at least for me, I'm able to experience the world through that sense. And it, it almost seems like a superpower, but it really is. And I, I had, uh, you have a, uh, we have a buddy in common, Hobie Wedler. And when I had Hobie on the podcast, a few, I don't know, several episodes ago, one of the anecdotal things that we talked about was I, I can remember being a kid, um, being at home when I'm, I'm normally sighted and my parents would come home and uh, before they would make a noise or announce their presence, I could tell which one it was by the, the way they, when they would come in, they'd put their keys down like in the same place. And my parents' keychains yeah. sounded differently. So like my, my mom could walk in and put her keys down right inside the door. And before she says, you know, I'm here, I would know that's my mom just based on the way the keys sounded versus the way my dad's keys sounded or maybe some other noise, you know, I, I've always been very in tune to sound for whatever reason. Yeah. So once sound becomes my main source of information, then I, th again, I, I think it's been always this way, but I, because I pay more attention to it, you know, I've probably honed it and gotten a little better with it over time, but I don't know. Do, do you think, has that been your experience or do you think they actually improve? I actually agree with you. And the one thing I'll, I'll add is like growing up before I was diagnosed, I had a, a fairly photographic memory. So it wasn't necessarily what I heard, but more of what I saw. And when, as my vision got worse, it sort of shifted like you, you were talking about with the audio. Now, if I hear things, I remember them a lot more, but I still do have a little bit of a photographic memory where like, if I do a process on my computer for the first time, there's a very high likelihood that I'm going to remember the exact steps that I, I did. Um, so I'm more of a see, hear, and do type of learner, a little bit of a, all of them combined. Um, I like to, to do it and demonstrate it one or two times to, to like prove to myself more. So the, the one interesting thing that, that I've, noticed and I guess I've honed it over the years is if I'm sitting in a room with a lot of people and there's a lot of conversations going on I can sort of tune my hearing in and out of different conversations around me and I, I don't know if you've ever like tried to do this or experienced this but like when when I'm at a family gathering and my mom and my aunt are talking and then my two brothers are on the other side of me talking I can sort of a, a like selective hearing to some degree where I can like be listening to both conversations and at like certain points I can like turn one completely off and only hear 
the one that I'm focusing on. Yes, I um, I believe that is somewhat of a superpower. And I don't know that I'm going to go into detail on mine because I don't know if I want people to know that I'm doing that when I'm around people. You know, and, and, and I, the, maybe the, uh, I've, I've thought about maybe the CIA should maybe, maybe you should be in the program too, where, you know, I can sit us in a room somewhere and, and we can, you know, not look like we're listening to whatever is going on, but in fact, we're, you know, listening to exactly what's going on. So I, yeah, I, I've done some experimenting with that too. And that's, a that could be perceived as a, as a superpower. Yeah. Cause there's a lot more than just sound going on there and sound you know, perception, you got to, you're, you got to mentally be able to, you know, flip back and forth to what you're listening to and what you're not listening to and, and parsing out, you know, and yeah, it's almost like changing the station on the radio. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That is a superpower. I'll have to think of what, I'll have to think of what my superhero name is. Then. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, James, it's been a uh, great chatting with you here, man. What's the best way for people? If we got businesses or people that are looking for accessibility stuff, or they just want to connect with you. I know you're on LinkedIn and Instagram and all those places. You've also got a website. What's the, we'll, we'll link to all those locations down below too. There'll be a profile on the website. You can find out more about James particularly, but where's the best place for somebody to go to? to catch you my my personal website is just jameswarnkin.com first and last name.com linkedin is you can just look my name up and then outside of linkedin and when web i do make content and post on tiktok and instagram and the handles for those are both the apex chaser so t-h-e apex chaser and there's soon to be a youtube channel coming i'm going to say that on on record to, to hold myself to it because it's been a, a move I've been wanting to make, but I haven't quite jumped over the, the side of the ship yet into it. So, but the video of what it's like living with a disability, a visual disability and going to the eye doctor is most likely going to be the introduction video to the YouTube channel. Awesome. Well, now it's on record. It's out there. So it's also the beginning of the year. So you still got all the resolutions and things to get to. So I know 2023 is going to be uh, be a lot of fun. We're, it's underway now, and it's going to be exciting. Absolutely, and I, I'm super happy to, to have been here and had a conversation. Super appreciate it. I'm looking forward to seeing what the feedback is. If anybody else has the superpower of being able to select what you hear, I would love to, to hear about your experiences with it. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.